Hello, fellow Rebel Capitals. Hope you're well. So this market is crashing. We all know what it is, but it's a lot worse than you think. And I have been covering this story on this channel and with my whiteboard videos for some time. It's the implosion in the commercial real estate bubble. But I didn't even understand how bad it was until I listened to this recent podcast with an industry expert that has been in the commercial real estate business for the last 20 years. And everyone knows about office. Oh, George, 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 I get it. The office, this and off. No, no, no. Now that bubble that has imploded is bleeding over even into multifamily. Let's get over to this podcast. This is from Odd Lots, and I want to give a hat tip to my good buddy, Jeff Snyder. I heard him mention this on his show the other day. So at the gym, I listened to it. I was completely blown away by the statistics, the numbers, and the data that this guy was revealing. So here it is on YouTube. What I'm going to do here is read a quick summary, and then we're going to go through. It's a 35-minute podcast. Obviously, I don't want to play everything, but I'll go. Fortunately, Bloomberg has it broken down by sections. So I'll play a bit of each section, and then I'll comment on it. Then we'll go to the next section. So here's the summary. When it comes to commercial real estate, a lot of attention is obviously paid to offices, but it's not the only sector facing strains. Apartment buildings or multifamily residential may also be in trouble. And these are their words, not mine. This isn't George Gammon fear-mongering or anything like this. And as most of you know, a lot of the people in our mastermind group, the mastermind that I have with Kenny McElroy and Jason Hartman, uh, a lot of these people are in the multifamily space. And this is exactly what I've been hearing from them as well. In fact, I started hearing this about probably six to nine months ago. Getting back to the summary, for years, rates were falling and rents were rising and owning and operating apartments was a moneymaker. Then things went into overdrive with the pandemic. See, this is what I didn't understand. I realized that we had been building and building and building and building and, and money had been funneling into uh, this uh, multifamily real estate for a long time, uh, pretty much since 2012, 2013. But what I didn't realize is how that got turbocharged with 2021 and 2022. And another thing I, that was completely blew me away is why it was being turbocharged. And one of the things this industry insider points to is, uh, believe it or not, social media, uh, TikTok, Instagram, maybe even YouTube. I know it was very popular on Instagram and TikTok to talk about going out there and buying an Airbnb property that was negative cash flow. And oh, who cares if it's negative cash flow with the rent? Because you can just Airbnb it and you can get 50% higher rents and therefore it pencils out. And then you can just wait for all of this appreciation that we're going to have by inflation continuing for as long as we can see or as long as the eye can see. And we know that that's not panning out and that you got a lot of these people in the real estate business that are complete beginners. They don't know the first thing about it. They think it's just this. You know, it's a, a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. 
or it's a get rich quick type of scheme. And what they're realizing is, no, you're dealing with tenants, toilets. And in fact, I would argue Airbnbs, they're not even investments. You're running a business is what you're running. And they're getting a very uh, rude awakening here. And But he's saying that a lot of these people actually went out and bought multi bought apartment buildings. And they kept bidding the price higher and higher and higher and higher because they thought that rents would continue to go up and up and up and up. And all of a sudden, they're getting squeezed because rents are going down in some areas. But their cost of capital, because now they're having to roll over that debt, is increasing because interest rates are going up. But getting back to the summary here, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. They say the things went into overdrive with the pandemic thanks to plunging rates, surging rents, and an explosion in new household formation. This was really interesting. I never thought of new household information because, let, let's be honest, Josh, I'm sorry to break this to you, but your generation and the millennials barely have enough testosterone. They, they basically have the testosterone of a 10-year-old girl. I would say the average millennial male. And Josh, what are you? Gen, Gen Z. Z? Zen, yeah, Gen Z. Gen Z millennials, I mean, they are the, the definition of low T, right? <laughs> so that isn't really conducive to household formation. <laughs> oh, but what I didn't realize is all these kids living in their parents' basements, when they got the stimmy checks, they were able to move out for the first time. So it's not like they were out getting married and, and dating and doing what uh, people do, you know, what couples usually do. Uh, the, the precursor to having kids, if you guys know where I'm going with that. It's, it's not like, you know, again, the guys didn't have enough testosterone to actually date women or anything like that. But what they did is they were able to move out. And even if they wanted two or three other roommates, right, other kind of low-T beta male blue pill guys, uh, this still was kind of like a household being formed because they were moving out of their parents' basement. And their wages were going up, and they're going up faster than their expenses because they didn't have a lot of the expenses associated with, like, let's just say a middle-income family. So this was the household formation that they were referring to, which, which I found very fascinating. I never really thought about it that way. George, I need before we continue, I need to back up my generation because yeah. it was your generation who raised us. So you, I don't know who you want to put the blame on, but the Gen Xers raised the Gen Zs to be soy boys. Oh, yeah. And from a parenting standpoint, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. My generation has to take full blame. I, I completely agree with you. I completely agree with you. But at least my generation still has a little bit of testosterone left. Uh, with you guys, I think it's turned into it's estrogen. too far gone. Yeah, too far gone. <laughs> I, think, I think most males in your generation have more estrogen uh, than the average female in my generation. But uh, we'll <laughs> say that. <laughs> we'll see. Let's go down to your local Starbucks and you'll see what I'm referring to. But we'll save that for a separate video. They say now all of this is reversing. Rates have surged. Insurance costs have surged. Now, we talked about that with the residential side because everyone on the residential side gets hyper-focused on uh, locking in a fixed-rate mortgage. Oh, we have nothing to worry about with the residential. No, 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 no. These people are never going to sell. Absolutely not. 
because their mortgage cost won't go up, but they completely ignore all the other costs of owning a home. And this is exactly what they're pointing out in this multifamily space where people have gotten in way, way, way over their heads. That it's not just that rents are going down and rates are going up. It's that all the other costs involved, maintenance, insurance, property taxes, those are all going up as well. So they say operating costs have surged. The household formation boom didn't last. And in some areas, meaning that all of these guys moved out of their parents' basements, but they weren't able to find a date, actually hook up with a chick and have kids. So I guess uh, Tinder's not working out for them. <laughs> uh, at the end of the day, they just got to get in the gym, for heaven's sakes. Stop drinking that soy milk. Get in the gym. Eat some steak. Just up that testosterone. Do some manly things. Learn jujitsu. Go out and hunt some deer. <laughs> Listen to my good buddy Rich Cooper's podcast, for heaven's sakes. All right. Enough of the jokes. And in some areas of the country, particularly in the Sunbelt markets, rents are actually falling. So on this episode, they talked to a guy named Lee Everett. He is the vice president of research and strategy at Waterton. And this is a, a group that actually has assets, assets under management as well. Uh, they don't do, do just research or consulting, but they manage money. And they're experts in this multifamily commercial real estate space. And so they're going to talk about how the multifamily deal binge is what they're calling it in 2021 will have lat will result in a huge hangover. Again, their words, not mine. Now let's get into the podcast and I'll kind of react to what uh, Lee is saying. And I've got it on uh, double speed just so we can get through it here. I'm sure you guys will be able to follow it. And you had basically a half a trillion dollars trade between the beginning of 21 and the middle of 22. That vintage is everything that traded over that period. And while you had these soaring fundamentals I spoke about at the same time. So if you didn't get that, a half a trillion dollars trade during that bubble period of 2021 and into 2022. And just to give you some context, I think he says earlier in the podcast that normally, or let's just say 2018-19, so not even normally, uh, it, it, this would be even above average in 2018, 2019. He said you saw about maybe 100 billion come into the space per year. And he says in this year or this time frame, you saw 500 billion when above average is 100 billion. That's how big this bubble actually was or is right now as we speak. And so far was zero. The 10 year was zero to one. So financing was so easily available. You had people enter the space that had never been in the space before. They were projecting massive revenue growth and they were able to buy at very low yields because of the low financing costs. Now, what were those low yields? Cap rates in the space got down to, say, in Phoenix, to, for 1970s and 80s vintage product that wasn't ideally located, you were looking at a three and a half percent cap rate. Wow. So a garbage property in Phoenix, you're looking at a three and a half cap rate is what he was saying. Really astonishing. And one of the things when I tell stories about uh, prior my life prior to retiring in 2012, I always tell you guys about businesses that I would look at and consider buying. And 
the owner, the seller of the business would always try to sell you on future numbers. You know, oh, it's going to grow by this and it's going to grow by that. Even if it was a McDonald's or a laundromat, you know, whatever it was, even a normal business. I was always looking at kind of small and mid-sized businesses. I never got into the big stuff. But they would sit there and give you all these pro forma numbers is what we used to call them. And it was just total nonsense. It's just like, uh, look, I'm going to pay you a multiple on what your earnings are right now. Right now. I'm not going to pay you on what you think your earnings are going to be in a year or two years or three years. If it was going to be that great, you wouldn't sell the business for heaven's sakes, right? But that was just known. I mean, and, and the, the mentors that I had taught me this as well. Is you never, ever, ever pay for future numbers. You pay for today's numbers and you pay for the numbers of the last two or three years. So th- whenever uh, I saw people in the real estate space, the multifamily space talk about, well, we're buying it right now. And it, you know, it, it barely pencils. I mean, we got a little positive cash flow, but we're expecting rents to grow by 5% per year to infinity and beyond basically. And when, when we get this rent growth, well then, okay, oh my gosh, we're going to be making all this money. And I would just sit there and look at him and just shake my head and be like, okay, we'll see how that plays out. Not with my money or not. And it, it, it seems like uh, a lot of people were not only buying these properties that barely had any positive cash flow because they were overpaying for them, but they overpaid to such a, ma- a huge degree as indicated by the cap rates of these garbage properties in Phoenix cities representing that a lot of these properties when purchased probably had negative cash flow, negative cash flow. And now they've got even more, uh, the, the negative cash flow prog- problem is even worse because rents have gone down, yet expenses have gone up. Hey guys, I want to remind you to check out Rebel Capitalist Pro. This is the incredible online investment forum that I have with investment experts, Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh. It includes professionals such as Patrick Serezna from Macro Voices. He specializes in options, Jason Hartman, real estate, and Brent Johnson with Macro Economics. If you want to build wealth and thrive in this world of out-of-control central banks and big governments, Rebel Capitalist Pro is the resource you need. So check it out today at georgegammon.com forward slash pro. That's georgegammon.com forward slash pro. We'll see you inside with the fellow rebel capitalists that are taking their investing to the next level. So now he starts talking about the, the change in cap rates here. I over price. Okay. And the less NOI you have over price, essentially the more risk you're taking on in the deal because you're relying far more on value to be driven by price mm. growth rather than NOI growth. Uh, okay. And when you're buying at, say, a three and a half cap and not ideally located property, you're very much relying on that income to price ratio staying the same or declining, especially if you're doing so with interest rates that are around 2%, which is what you're looking at at that period in time for short-term floating rate debt, which is what really flooded the space. And this is what's become what fed these CLOs that have grown. Short-term floating rate debt crushing the market right now. And did you notice what he said there at the end? He was talking about CLOs, collateralized loan 
obligations. Josh, where have we heard about CLOs before? Uh, I vaguely remember 2008. There you go, buddy. There you go. Josh obviously, obviously has enough testosterone to remember or to have a good memory. <laughs> we, we can test him on that from time to time. But getting back to this, uh, th- it's just the same game. We've seen this movie and we know how it ends. So um, there's all kinds of uh, one, a million questions already. Well, why don't we actually, just since you said, uh, talked about the financing structure, short-term floating rate debt. So Tracy and I have done a number of episodes on credit and the looming maturity wall for Thank corporations. You, and uh, Tracy insists I say looming. But there's not, uh, in the case of this, this has to be refinanced very quickly. Like talk about the sort of, okay, someone does a deal. How, what are the terms? How far, when do they have to pay it back? How does that work? So these deals were <clears throat> primarily financed by debt funds. And what ended up happening was they were issuing what's called bridge loans. Okay. These bridge loans were meant for people who entered the space to be able to buy. FYI, bridge loans are not 30-year fixed rate mortgages. Bridge loans, at least in my experience prior to retiring, are very short term. Buy a property with floating rate, high leverage. By high leverage, I'm talking 75 to 80%, sometimes even higher. Now, when you're buying floating rate, at a 225 interest rate handle with 80% leverage, your returns look really good until that floating rate debt starts to move upward. And what we've seen today is a 500 basis point increase in SOFR since those, that debt was done. Right. So you're looking at 5% higher interest rates. The fundamentals that were there in 21 are no longer there. So you have declining NOI. And as such, what you've seen is these bridge loans that need to be refinanced in 23, 24, and somewhat in 25, uh-huh. they don't pencil anymore. You were essentially to get this debt writing to a debt service coverage ratio in 21 of about 1.25. And that's... And, and just like the last real estate crash, guys, what, what were all these people that bought these multifamily properties, what were they expecting to happen? Uh, number one, they're expecting rents to go up so their income would go up. But even if that didn't happen, they were expecting to be bailed out by price appreciation. It, exactly what happened last time, just in a slightly different sector. How much your income can cover your debt. Today, because of increase in debt costs, decreases in net operating income, and increases in other expenditures, such as insurance, some of these buildings are looking at a debt service coverage ratio below seven. And that's very common. And that means these buildings can't pay their debt. And this is a mounting wall. I think in 24, we're looking at about 34 billion in CLOs that are going to need to be refinanced, another 12 in 25, and we've got another seven to nine to get through this year. So it doesn't sound like a lot, 30, 40 billion, but you've got to think about the systemic risk there. That's what's key. Okay, let's go to this next section where they talk about rent growth. Earlier, we had this household formation explosion in 2021. But ultimately, what that was, was it pulled some demand forward from 2022. And the massive apartment supply wave began to come to market in 21. And then on top of that, even if you raise rents today, insurance costs have gone up in such a way that it's deeply, deeply impacting the market. You're looking at renewals right now costing 30 to 50% additional every year. I've heard quotes of 3,000 a unit to insure. Whoa. So if I didn't, if I caught that correctly... 30, 40, 50% increases on their insurance costs. It goes right back to what we were saying the other day in that video about residential. We're in Florida right now, over a thousand in Texas. So you have massive increases on the cost side, massive debt increases that were never underwritten for, and rent growth that you achieved some of, but you're not going to achieve in the longer term, particularly with the nature of this product. A lot of it in markets like Phoenix was bought by syndicators, new people to the space, social media sensations, fundraising on LinkedIn. Social media sensations, fundraising on LinkedIn. I think they talked about TikTok or something like that in there as well. So whenever you see this happening, it's always a bubble. Always, always, always a bubble. 
and people such as that. This is like real estate TikTok. Well, yeah. Tracy, I was gonna say, uh, you know, like it's been one of our recurring jokes over the year on the podcast. Like, what if we get into trucking? What if we get into this? It sounds like so a bunch of people took that joke literally and said, what if we get into X? What if we became landlords? Yeah, what if we get, what if we became multifamily landlords in Phoenix? <laughs> I have, can I just say right now, I have no desire to no, do that. No, me neither. Well, and I don't think these people really had that desire either. Their ultimate goal was to flip these apartment buildings. They wanted to buy them, renovate them, use the bridge loan to get through that period. Does that sound familiar? When was the, have you ever heard of people getting in trouble with real estate when their only goal is not to hold the property with negative cash, cash flow, but just flip it to someone else, a greater fool? Now you're buying cheap. No, no, no. You're buying expensive and just hoping to sell it to someone at an even more expensive price. It's just, it's unbelievable how we as humans are hardwired to make the same mistakes over and over and over again, period. And then sell it to someone that would then use agency, Fannie or Freddie financing to hold the building long-term. And whoever they sold to, they planned on being the true operator. Mm. Now, a lot of these people that have no operating experience and entered the space are stuck being landlords and they had really aren't necessarily sure how to do that. So that's also hurting the revenue side. You have to have economies of scale, experience, vertical integration and such in order to be a landlord. And those structures don't exist at a lot of this new capital that entered our space. Mm. Can I just ask, you know, we're talking about all the various calculations that go into underwriting one of these things. So insurance cost, the cost of the actual. Okay, so let's get, let's see, too much faith. Okay, mark to market, debt service, service coverage ratio, housing supply. Ah, uh, yeah, let's check this out. So initially when I was talking mark to market, that was on the rent side. And this is, that's something that doesn't happen that often, but everybody was built, buying buildings in 21 and essentially assuming they could immediately raise the rents by 20% marking them to market. Now on the debt side, they aren't marked to market nearly as quickly as you'd like. Even on the valuation side, I think your cap rates are moving upward way more slowly than you'd expect. On the bank side, there's a lot of mark to market left to happen. And I guess the roundabout way of answering your question is it's happening. And this is why real estate moves so slowly as far as prices. And if you guys watched my whiteboard video the other day, uh, the conclusion was trying to answer the question, will, real will the real estate market crash in 2024? And I said, no, no. I think nominal prices could come down, but will it crash? No, because it never does. So why doesn't it crash? Because you have this huge lag between, or this huge delta between buyers and sellers. And buyers want what they think it's worth today where sellers always want what they think it was worth yesterday and it takes a long time for sellers to come to the realization that you know what my property just isn't worth what i thought it was my property is only worth half of what i thought it was it's 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 a it's a, a huge mental psychological hurdle for people to get over. And it takes a long, long time. But what's interesting about it is it's like that bankruptcy quote. It happens very, very slowly, then all of a sudden. Because what happens is the sellers are always in denial. And they're trying to kick the can down the road. They're hoping the market will turn around. The real estate agent is trying to feed them this garbage that prices are going to swing back up and yada, 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 yada. And so they, they, they try to hold off the inevitable for so long, hoping that the market will recover back to these insane nosebleed prices that they paid for the properties to begin with. But what ends up happening is it's almost like all at once, they have this epiphany moment where they realize that, oh, shoot, you know what? The market isn't turning around. And all of a sudden, it goes from, okay, the market's going to recover. I just need to wait a little while longer to, holy 
the market is not only not going to recover, but the market's going to continue to go down and it's going to start going down forever. And you have this panic selling. And then the capitulation process doesn't happen immediately. That in and of itself takes another couple years. So what this gentleman is saying, at least what I'm getting, is that we are right at that moment or we'll into 2024, we're going to be at that moment where these sellers start to have that epiphany that, you know what, I'm not going to be able to hold on any longer. I can't kick, kick this can down the road. And maybe I just paid way too much for this property. And I'm going to have to accept the fact the prices are never going to recover. And I just need to sell now at any price. And if I can't sell, I'm just giving the keys back to the bank. But not nearly quickly enough. On the debt fund side, it's going to mostly happen as these workouts happen, as these refinancings happen, and as this debt comes due in this wall of maturities. And the wall of maturities is real on this short-term debt. They're going to be able to extend somewhat, but these people that couldn't afford interest rate caps, that didn't have the reserves for it, that, that, that's going to mature and it's going to hurt. Exactly what we're saying. But then he, I don't know if we'll catch the bit, but he goes on to talk about how this is going to affect the derivatives market. Because mostly all of this debt, this short term, these bridge loans that he's talking about, they were packaged up, just like they always are, and they were sold to Wall Street. And then Wall Street sells them. And it's, it's the exact same nonsense we saw prior to the GFC. Long time. So the issue with stringing it out becomes how bad the debt service coverage ratios are today. So you have to have a really motivated lender. And these lenders have so much debt out in the space today, it's going to be difficult to do this for everyone. One of the larger syndicators that got themselves in trouble. Okay, so now what they're talking about is the ability for these landlords, these owners of these properties to go back to the bank and try to renegotiate the loan. And the punchline here is that, yes, some of them may be able to do this, but even once they renegotiate, who's to say that it won't get worse? I'd like to remind everyone right now that we're just talking about rents going down slightly. This is with unemployment below four. But what happens to people's ability to pay rent if the unemployment rate goes from, let's say, 3.8%, 3.9% up to 8%, which is highly probable if we have a recession or a hard landing? So you get my point. If rents are declining right now, when unemployment is almost at an all-time low, what are rents going to do if unemployment goes up to what it normally goes up to during a hard landing or recession? Again, say 7, 8, 9%, maybe double digits. I mean, this is where you see some serious strain. So it goes back to my point where even if they're able to renegotiate that loan, okay, fine, they're renegotiating that loan at today's rents. But that doesn't mean today's rents will be tomorrow's rents especially if the Fed gets what they're trying to achieve, and that's a recession to bring inflation down under 2%. They're just trying to do a soft landing when you guys know my base case that it's going to be a hard landing, if not crash landing. When the Phoenix area has done around 650 million in workouts over the last year and a half. Wow, in workouts. Yes. So like taking care of troubled loans. Yes. And that's where you're going to mark to market these things as the loans get worked out, as they get refinanced, as they get brought back. And the trigger is either people not being able to pay their debt service, which is happening. I, I've been in New York for the week and seeing friends in the industry. And these are friends that work on the lender side and they're getting keys given back to them all over the country already. Wow. So this is something that's starting to happen. Uh, another friend just mentioned a deal he just bought in New York for less than the construction loan. So there's pain and we're starting to see it. People are calling us that haven't been able to finish developments because the equity partner pulled out and they're offering wow. chances to getting low. And every bid that we place today is frankly 
low. And that's because we believe the market has more pain as this market market happens. But the events haven't fully cascaded because not all of the loans have been dealt with. And the events haven't fully cascaded. So you see, and again, what we're thinking about is the balance sheet of the individual that owns this property, the entity that owns this property that's underwater and has all these problems. But we're not thinking about it through the lens of the counterparty risk and what those counterparties mean to the overall economy. So let's think about it. So it goes back to the bank. The keys go back to the bank. Great. Do you think the bank's going to want to lend on one of these properties in the future? No. Do you think the bank is going to be aggressively lending to other businesses as a result of what they see happening in the commercial real estate sector? Absolutely not. This is what Snyder talks about, deflationary money. It's not necessarily the measurement of money going up or down or anything like that, but it's banks pulling back, banks seeing much more risk out in the system. Therefore, they're, uh, they're unwilling to lend. And if they're unwilling to lend, even for productive means, that, mean, that uh, represents or that results usually in the economy slowing down. It's, it's like a doom loop. Right where you have this risk over here that's creating more perceived risk over there, which creates less uh, velocity with money and credit. And the lower velocity in money and credit, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy where that in turn uh, creates the or, or brings that risk to fruition, right? So whatever they were worried about, it makes it happen from the simple fact that the banks are no longer willing to extend credit. And then that just makes the situation worse because then once they're no longer willing to extend credit, we start seeing bankruptcies. And once we actually start seeing bankruptcies, then the perceived risk goes up even higher and the amount of credit extension contracts even further. And you know who's holding the bag on all the CLOs? And if those are financial institutions, even if they're not banks, they, you know, maybe they're players in repo. Maybe, maybe they're, I mean, they're going to be part of the monetary system. They're going to be part of the financial system. And if those people are pulling back as well, that just decreases the velocity of money and the velocity or the credit extension even further. The other thing people like to do is extend and pretend in our sector, but I don't think that's going to be as viable going forward because it's really hard to extend and pretend if your debt service coverage ratio is up 0.6. Wow. Uh, talk to us a little bit more about supply specifically. So uh, one thing that's happening is I, maybe perversely, I imagine as supply chains have eased over the last couple, over the last year or so, probably had a lot of projects that were moving slowly that finally finished and opened the doors. And so you have on the one hand, uh, this looming maturity wall of the next few years. And then as you mentioned, more supply hitting the market into a weak market and multifamily construction had a very good decade, even going into COVID is my understanding. And then it just took off in 2021. Talk to us about those dynamics. Yeah, there's been for over the last year, more than a million units under construction. And if you think about that in terms of the total housing market, yeah. you had what, 1.8 million total housing units under construction. So the majority of the housing construction in our country at this point in time is the multifamily product. And between construction backlogs over the pandemic, and then the low interest rate environment, allowing tons of shovels to get into the ground for development, we just blew out records and we're at levels last seen in the early 70s and we're close to surpassing, if not haven't surpassed those levels. Wow. So, so you hear this, oh, shorting supply or uh, housing shortage, housing shortage, housing shortage. But what people didn't realize there that pound the table on this is that you can't just flip a switch and have another 1 million housing units. No, that takes time and it takes around two or three years. So we had this huge boom, all of this demand 
during 2020, 2021, as an example, all this household formation, now that's starting to contract. But at that time, it's like the bullwhip effect. It's the exact same thing that all of these developers thought that this demand would last forever. And what they didn't realize is that it was a sugar rush and it was temporary. So what they're doing, thinking that this demand is going to last forever, is they build all of these units while it looks like on paper that supply is low. But now all of a sudden, we have this tsunami of supply that's hitting the market. While at the same time, especially if we're going to into a recession, demand plummets. So the main takeaway here, guys, is this is something we need to watch like a hawk. And it's not just the office side of commercial real estate. It's multifamily as well. And who knows what else this will impact. And even if you're someone says, oh, George, well, I don't even care because I don't own a multi, I don't own an apartment. I don't own uh, a house or I'm not in real estate. In fact, this is going to be good for me because my rents are going to come down. Yeah, maybe. But what you have to do is you have to consider all of the systemic risk. And you've got to understand that this doesn't just apply to guys and gals that own apartment buildings or office buildings or whatever it is. This applies to the banking system. And if the banking system breaks down, regardless of what you're doing, regardless of what your profession is, you will likely be impacted just like we saw during the GFC. All right, guys, enjoy the rest of your afternoon. As always, make sure that you're standing up for freedom, liberty, free market capitalism, and male testosterone. And we'll see you in the next video. <laughs>